Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. I'm Bharati Jagdish. Now, farmers in Malaysia say that the year-end monsoon season has affected the production of vegetables in Cameron Highlands, causing prices to soar by as much as 50%. Extreme weather events, we're talking here about droughts and floods, have inflated global food prices beyond the effects of the Russia-Ukraine war. Climate change will only continue to stress crop yields. Now, at the recent G20 summit, food security was a major theme. After Russia invaded Ukraine, its navy imposed a blockade on Ukraine's Black Sea ports, trapping about 20 million tons of grain meant for export along with other foodstuffs such as maize and sunflower oil, causing food prices to increase worldwide. Speaking on the eve of the G20 summit, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had earlier said that the deal was crucial to global food security. At the same time, the International Monetary Fund's Managing Director, Kristalina Georgi, said that 345 million people in the world are now suffering from a food crisis as a result of various things, including the Russia war with Ukraine, high inflation and, of course, climate disasters. To talk more about the way ahead and what really can be done, Duke Kip joins us. He's Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at CropLife Asia. Hi, Duke. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Hi, Barty. How are you? Doing well, Duke. But this is bad news, right? And Actually, we've been hearing about this for several years now, how the climate crisis is impacting food supplies. And beyond that, geopolitical uncertainties as well. So I understand you guys are in the business of plant science, but of course, it's not a business. You're a nonprofit looking into and promoting plant science. Give us an idea of what that's really about. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. As far as crop life Asia is concerned, we we, we do uh, promote the use of uh, plant science to address the uh, the challenges you just you just rattled off there. Uh, I'd say that uh, you know, above above all else, when it comes to plant science and any technology, it's it's really about innovation and helping driving food security and sustainability. And crop life Asia is is trying to lead in that. Whether whether it's plant science, as you just mentioned, whether it's drought tolerant seeds, greener crop protection products, or new breeding technologies or even digital tools like satellite imagery, precision agriculture, they all can be both drivers of, uh, of you know, higher productivity and greater sustainability. So that's, that's the work that Crop Life Asia tries to lead. Mm. What exactly is plant science per se? It's a good question. Plant science really at its core is uh, crop protection products as well as plant biotechnology, right? And so um, there's a lot that goes into that, but uh, at the end of the day, it's all about making sure farmers have the ability to, to grow more food, to feed a growing population, and to do it sustainably and safely, and again, provide that food that uh, we all depend on. Mm. How far along are we on this journey? Because one would think that there hasn't been much progress in this arena, or are you just saying that things could be a lot worse than they are now if there hadn't been such developments? Well, you know, you're, you're right. And so there's a big report that comes out every year that gives us some insight into how we're doing. It's called the, um, the United Nations State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World, the SOFI report. And this year, um, it really was a little bit jarring in noting that Asia continues to lead the world with respect to the number of hungry people uh, around the world from 418 million to 425 million. So it actually went up. But a question about the question about larger, uh, as far as the uh, world worldwide uh, figures, we're really sort of treading water when it comes to all this. According to the same report, um, I believe 80% of the world's population, around 670 million people, will be facing hunger by the end of the decade. 
So that's the same number of people that actually were facing hunger in 2015, by the way, the same year that the Sustainable Development Goals were initiated. So we're really only treading water, unfortunately, when it comes to this. Of course, you mentioned several things that you are, you are looking into as an organization, plant biotech, plant seeds, crop protection, uh, which is, in a sense, helping farmers look at alternative ways, forget about pesticides, for instance, and using synthetic chemicals that could help them protect their crops from big losses. But the fact is that the losses continue to occur, right, to some extent in many regions because of the climate crisis. Considering that is such a big issue and will require the cooperation of so many stakeholders, what would you suggest as the way ahead? Well, you know, and you, you really rattled off you know, some of the, the highlights there. Climate change is a huge one you just said you got into a few minutes ago. And as far as our region and some of the challenges, we're on the front lines when it comes to climate change. Vietnam, Myanmar, the Philippines, Thailand are among the top 20 countries most affected globally by climate change just over the past two decades. So what does this mean for farmers here in, in our region in respect to farm sec- um, uh, food security? Um, again, as you noted, more droughts, floods, extreme weather events to contend with. That means soil quality is becoming an issue. Issue. That means planting and harvesting seasons are unpredictable. That means that there are more pests, weeds, and diseases to contend with. So there's a lot there to grapple with. I think that the more we can give farmers more of that innovation that we, we mentioned earlier, um, the, the better. And, you know, it may be that uh, conventional pesticides, conventional fertilizers, conventional technologies sort of get put into the wrong category because they actually can be a game changer for farmers in the region. Mm, so talk to me more about that, the role of regional farmers in driving food production with the aid of the various things that you've mentioned. Well, farmers, if you look at the considered food production uh, on the whole, farmers are really the engine that make, that make it go. We call them the food heroes for our region. That's because the vast majority of the growers in Asia are smallholder farmers. And that really just means that they farm land totaling less than two hectares. In fact, in Asia, we're home to the smallest size farms and the largest number of smallholders anywhere in the world. About 100 million of those smallholders are right here in Southeast Asia. So um, what is their role? I think, you know, for our region, we really depend on those smallholders to produce, again, the food that, that we depend on to drive national ag trade, but most importantly, to feed the growing population. So that's why we call them the food heroes. I think it's a question of how we can enable and empower them to do, to do more. You mentioned earlier traditional pesticides and things in that category can be a game changer. What exactly do you mean? If you just look within our own region, unfortunately, the satellite, there was a very you know, a big example of this just a few months ago going into last year. Sri Lanka was facing a food crisis and still is, an economic crisis and still is. And it goes back in part at least to a decision that was made there policy-wise to ban the use of conventional pesticides and conventional fertilizers and, and unfortunately, and very sadly, Sri Lanka um, suffered greatly for that. Farmers suffered greatly for that. And so what I mean by that is that there are greener technologies available uh, more and more uh, in the pesticide space that, that uh, you know, are, are frankly you know, very helpful in um, helping farmers make better decisions, responsible use practices, and guarding against overuse, misuse, and off-label use that, you know, mm. it have to be considered. Right, right. So, of course, uh, there have been many concerns over the use of pesticides. But what I'm hearing from you is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are ways of using all of these tools quite safely in order to ensure food security in the long term. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Baby with the bathwater is a very good analogy. But here's the thing, Duke. A lot of our problems also have to do with the industrialized farming of animals, right? I mean, industrial farming... It also puts a lot of pressure on 
farmers who are in the plant crop business because you have to feed the animals. And all of this actually requires consumers to make different choices, perhaps reduce our demand for cheap meat. How do you think that side of it can be tackled better? You know, I, I, I may be a little bit uh, biased in the sense I think that there are food systems around the world that we can look to to see you, know, you, you have a presence of organic, you have a presence of a, of a robust um, you know, food production system generally when it comes to meat as well. Uh, in the U.S., I'm thinking about how it all kind of works together and it's not, it's not an either-or proposition. It all sort of works together. I think that's, that's something that has to be considered, you know, not closing the door to one type of food production. It all sort of works uh, to sort of complement each other as we go through this journey around food security and, and sustainability, which are, you know, it is a journey, right? And making sure that we don't drop the ball with either one of those. Of course, in Singapore and many other countries, one of the initiatives that has been highlighted as a way of engendering food security is the production of things such as plant-based meats. Where do you stand on this? Well, I don't have a position, and we don't have a position per se on plant-based meats, but I think, again, it goes back to what we just discussed, that a robust food system is one that's diverse and one that's got a lot of different, you know, gives more consumer choice, as you alluded to. And I think that's something that everybody would agree on. The question is again that we don't that we don't uh, as you said earlier throw the baby out of the bathwater with any of these any of these um, technologies any of these new innovations that are coming online to ensure that we continue to meet food security um, challenges that uh, that are you know, maybe more prevalent and more um, critical now than ever before with all the headwinds around climate change, COVID and conflict. Mm. Of course, a lot of statements have been made about food security and climate change. I mean, we saw a few statements being made at the G20 summit recently in Bali. And let's not forget the COP climate conference recently as well. What stands out for you in terms of what more needs to be done? And of course, moving beyond some of the motherhood statements that we have been hearing. Well, it's a good question. I mean, in respect to the G20, I would, I would mention as well that it's not uh, – the host country, Indonesia, will be the chair of, of ASEAN next year, and it's focused, as noted, that food security will be a, a primary focus, which is encouraging. Uh, as far as COP27 specifically, I'd say you know, it's sort of a mixed bag of results from that, but, but generally I'd say that uh, you know, the, the, the journey is, uh, is, is going to move forward. And it has to. Agriculture is I guess, the, the larger emitter of GHGs, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, of any sector, so so it has to be it has to be made to be more uh, climate resilient. It has to be made to be more uh, environmentally friendly, and there are ways to do that again through the uh, introduction of more innovation, more technology to help make that possible. Now, in Singapore, food security and sustainability has been a major issue, and we have targets in place as well uh, for food security because we don't have a lot of land. And a lot is being done in the technological arena as well uh, to ensure that we can grow our own food or at least a, a larger proportion of our own food. What else do you think needs to be done in this context? What's missing? Um, well, first of all, I'd say Singapore is so unique, and, and if anything, preparedness is really its calling card, and that's no different uh, when it comes to food security and self-sufficiency. Of course, Singapore is home to the 30 by 30 food production initiative, right? That uh, It's a very ambitious goal set to ensure that 30% of the national nutritional needs are met through local production by 2030. Will Singapore realize that target? Well, given their commitment and determination, I wouldn't bet against Singapore at all. Certainly, but I think it's important to remember as well that you know, regardless of how that all plays out, it's very likely that traditional farming, because we talked about, driven by regional stakeholders, um, will continue to be the engine for food production for some time to come. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a reality that we that we get to work with. 
You did say a multi-pronged approach is required. You can't throw any one approach out the window. Even things such as industrialized farming, uh, which has been criticized by many activists. But what sort of dynamic do you see? I mean, what proportion of food security should be fueled by specific types of farming or specific types of technology? I mean, do you have a vision in mind for what will actually fuel food security as we move forward, whether it's traditional methods or new methods? Well, I, I think, again, there's a romantic view of the way that farming has been done in Asia for, for, for centuries. And I think uh, the reality is, of course, that you know, um, as we get further into this uh, journey around sustainability, it's imperative that we ensure that uh, while we have got so many smallholders around Asia doing their, their level best to produce the food we all depend on, that it's not really fair to expect them to produce at those levels without the availability of, of technology. And again, it could be plant science, it could be drones, that could be precision agriculture, any number of different types of technology. But no matter how great the technology is, if it's not available or not the regulatory frameworks in place to ensure they have the availability and also to ensure the responsible use of the technology, then it's just on the shelf and it's, it's, it's never going to be able to be uh, impactful for those farmers. So I would just add that. What about consumer education in all of this, the choices that consumers make? Well, I think consumers are more educated than ever before, and I think that is that is a net good, positive development, right? I think the, the more aware they are of where their food comes from, how it's how it's grown, and where, where it's being shipped from is a, is a good thing. Um, and it makes us all um, doing our, make sure we're all doing our level best to the, to ensure those best practices are in place with respect to sustainability and, and, and all, all that goes with that. So I, I think... I think consumers are educated at a very high level, and I think that uh, that's that's a, a good thing. Thanks very much for your time today, Duke. Duke Kip, he is Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at Crop Life Asia. Thanks for joining us on Prime Time. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.